You're listening to From Woke to Work, The Anti-Racist Journey. My name is Kamala Avila Salmon, and I gotta be real with you. A black square on your Instagram does not make you an anti-racist, but there is a path. Join me as I guide you from becoming aware of racial injustice to actually doing something about it. Whether you're an ally ready to take action or just a Black person looking for someone else to answer all those ally questions, you're in the right place. It's time to go from woke to work. Hey guys, welcome back to From Woke to Work, the anti-racist journey. I'm your host, Kamala Avila Salmon. Now in the last episode, we talked about the importance of awareness, what it is, why we need it, and how to make it count. Awareness is a really important step in the journey towards allyship and anti-racism. It's that initial spark that, if harnessed correctly, can spur us to deeper inquiry and ultimately action. But awareness on its own is not enough. While we can't be working on problems that we don't exist, simply knowing a problem exists is not necessarily being ready to solve it. In this episode, we're going to unpack some of the limits of awareness. Now, let's go back in time to early summer this year. The murders of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd were top stories in the country, maybe the world. It seemed like everyone was talking about racism and anti-Blackness and anti-Black violence. Awareness was at an all-time high, yet at the same time, it was clear to me that while we were having conversations, we still were maybe not having the right ones. Now, for years, I've been writing on social media about race, and I'd long used the hashtag TalkAboutRace as a call to action and a rallying cry. I firmly believe that if we could have more honest conversations across races about racism, we could make progress. And I'm not sure that that's wrong, but boy, did this summer prove that it wasn't fully right either. I don't think I realized how much non-Black people could talk about race and still move no closer to really understanding the nature of racism. How it lives not only in the big moments of who is most likely to get a knee on their neck for almost nine minutes, but also who is or who isn't part of their team at work, who they hire, who they mentor, who they develop for, who they groom. And I definitely underestimated how long a nation could talk about race. Releasing statement after statement in support of Black lives without taking any concrete action to address systemic racism. So why is that? Why isn't it as simple as when you know better, you do better? Now, my guests today are the perfect people to talk about this because through their work as diversity, equity, and inclusion professionals for large public companies, they're on the front lines of trying to raise awareness and they can see very clearly its limits. First, let's welcome Sharice Torres. Charisse is an inspirational leader with nearly 25 years of experience in marketing, brand management, strategic planning, and change management. She is currently the Global Director of Inclusion at Google, responsible for driving inclusion strategy, including the employee resource groups, leadership inclusion, partnerships, narrative, and insights. There, she also hosts a speaker series called Search for Racial Equity, focused on educating audiences about the roots of systemic racism. Next, I wanna welcome Barbara Furlow-Smiles. Barbara is the Global Engagement and Internal Resource Group Program Manager at Facebook. She has an extensive background in diversity and employee research group management with over 10 plus years experience. 
She leads company-wide DNI trainings and educational programming for employees all around the world. So raising awareness is something that she also knows very, very well. Sharice and Barbara, welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you. Doing great. Now, I've been looking forward to this conversation. And this journey that we've put together really means a lot to me. And we're just at the beginning of it. As I said, we started to scratch the surface around awareness. And we talked a little bit about why it's important to really, quote unquote, get woke. But the subject of this episode is really the limits. Why it's not enough to just be aware and why that alone won't make you an anti-racist or even an ally by itself. But before we go too far, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about your professional work trying to raise awareness of DEI matters in the workplace and what the last few months have been like in terms of doing this work. Barbara? Wow. Well, thank you so much, Kamala, for having me. For me, I live, eat, and breathe being Black. I tell folks that I took my pain to purpose. For me, it's not just a professional career. It's actually a life's calling. Dating back to just my horrible experiences while in high school with discrimination, with racism, I know intimately what that feels like. I tell folks I want to give a voice to the voiceless. And so I, I come to this work every day trying to make a difference, trying to impact people in whatever capacity. So it hits a little different. I also have a different resiliency because it's my life's calling. There's different things that I can take. There's different things I know how to influence. And there's also a different subject matter expertise when you live, eat, and breathe this. So that's really where I sit is really proud of being an educator and leading some amazing work streams in terms of racial and social equity. Amazing. Cherise? These past few months have been really extraordinary. So Kamala, you know me from my life as a marketer. I spent the majority of my time at Google and marketing. And Barbara, you know me from my Viacom days as a general manager. I had the opportunity over the past six months to take a rotation on our diversity, equity, and inclusion team. Interestingly, my project was supposed to be very well-defined. I was supposed to come in and build a narrative and storytelling pillar because as a marketer, I'm a natural storyteller. So my job is to come in, build up that skill set, build up that hiring, and then potentially move back into our marketing org. Well, the first day on the job, the Ahmaud Arbery video went viral. Two weeks later were Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. So my job quickly went from a very bespoke and well-defined project to really being at the ground floor of helping Google build its overall commitments to racial equity and finding support for Googlers from underrepresented communities as we navigated through the trauma of this time, not only race-based violence, but xenophobia and racism related to COVID. So the past several months have been the most extraordinary and rewarding of my career and also the absolute most gut-wrenching and exhausting because this is not something that I personally can turn off. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I hear it in both of your answers, but there is something that's a little bit different when you're doing DE&I work and you're also a member of the affected population, right? It's, it's not theoretical for you. It's a job, but it's not something that you can take off at the end of the day. So I just think it's really interesting for folks to really think about what it's been like, not only for all of their Black colleagues in general during this moment, 
but especially for Black colleagues that they have who are working in DE&I work, those that are actually on the front lines in more ways than one. So I think the thing that's been the hardest for me during this quote unquote mass moment of awareness, this racial reckoning, is that in many ways it feels like a slap in the face. It's like the whole country telling you all at once that they'd never really noticed your pain before or believed any of your stories. But now that they finally do, now you almost need to hold space for how traumatized they are by it. When we have actually been in trauma the whole time. Now, both of you probably deal with this up close. As you see in your work, the programming that you build actually opening people's eyes because of what you're doing. How do you handle that? Barbara, do you want to start? Yeah, so Kamala, you know me from Facebook. I'm dubbed the self-care queen. And it's not by accident. I tell folks, it has to be sustainable. We're here to fight the good fight, but we still have to be here to fight it. There are alarming rates, in particular Black women alone, dying from heart disease, stress-related illnesses. And that's not by accident. If you can see the trauma that you talked about, that's times 20, right? You're talking about Black women who are dealing with not only race, but then gender. And that's a whole nother slew of issues that we encounter. And so for me, I decided very early on being mentored by an amazing Black woman that I was going to be a fierce advocate if I was going to be in the space of self-care. And what I mean self-care is being unapologetic. So examples of that is, you know, at Facebook, we have amazing benefits where I took some childcare leave. I took two to three weeks. I know a lot of people would be like, oh, you don't want to show weakness. And I think that's another thing in the Black community. We're always taught and built not to show weakness. We're always taught and built to be better than everyone else. And I think it gets to a point where in particular, Black women, we're human. And I think to me, sustainability also, there's a responsibility if you're going to be in this fight to do a self-check, to make sure that you are whole and that you are well. What that did for me with everything that happened this year, in light of COVID, in light of being a mother, in light of being a wife, right? You layer all that on, um, is that I decided to get very selfish with my time and very intentional with what I consume. So I don't look at the news a lot. There's certain things I don't eat anymore. And there's certain people I don't talk to because I have such limited space. I just wanted to echo that because I think for me, when I talk to many women, I talk about Own Your Greatness. I have a workshop that I talk through and I, it saddens me at how much permission in particular women and Black women have to have in order to take a break. That's another life calling for me is take a break. Really focus on your self-care. This still will be here. It's been here for centuries, right? So it's, it's really more of a reality check that I like to echo. Yeah, I'm just going to just chime in right on the self-care front. I found once COVID hit, once we were in shelter in place, I made it a very deliberate moment working with my therapist. And yes, I have a therapist and I recommend that everyone has a therapist, particularly if your skin is brown. Amen. Yes. Particularly in this date and time. And I think there are too many times that we don't talk about that. I come from a family where you thought only quote unquote crazy people went to a therapist and heaven help you if you need an antidepressant, they're never going to let you live that down. But I am proud to say I have a therapist. I am proud to say that anti-anxiety medication is a lifesaver 
for me. So before COVID even hit, part of my coping strategy, part of my self-care strategy was to be deliberate about the way I start my day. I do not start my day opening my phone. I do not look at the news or social media or my email. The first thing I do is I roll right out of bed and I sit on my mat to meditate. If I don't start dropping into myself, centering myself to begin my day, someone else will be setting the pace for me. And I decided I need to set my pace for each day. So I start in meditation, I start in prayer, and I do a small reading. So I feel centered and grounded for whatever the day might bring me. And because I've been through therapy, because I've specifically been through trauma therapy, I was able to see, and Kamala, you called this right out at the beginning, this is a moment of trauma for Black people that has gone on for centuries, but this moment is highly triggering and others are feeling it at the same time. So what I ask people, especially when we're on an anti-racism journey with others is, yes, you should hold space for what you are feeling, but you need to center your Black colleagues in this moment because while you are feeling it, they have been living it. And when I looked at the way we were going to support communities at Google through this time, I went back to my trauma counselor and I said, this is a moment of trauma. We need to hold space and we need to have professionals to hold this space. It's great to come together with your peers and have a conversation, but in moments of deep trauma, you need a professional to help you process that, to help you hold space for it, to help you know what to do with it so you don't just spiral within your community. Yeah, I just think that's so important because this moment is so unlike most of the other moments that have looked like it before. And I've had a lot of time to think about why that might be. And there's a number of factors, COVID definitely being a big one, this moment of just being alone and by ourselves and deprived of some of the more typical escape routes, whether it's TV shows, sports, going out, drinking with friends, all of those things have been you know, put on pause. So I think for people who are not Black, who previously had escape routes to not focus on what was happening in the Black community, those things have been taken away. Now, but on the flip side, I think one of the biggest dangers around awareness is that for too many non-Black people who are just now getting woke, they sometimes feel as if that alone is the prize, right? It's like, okay, I get it now. Black lives matter. I agree. I'm an ally. And a big part of why I put this journey together with a lot of steps between awareness and allyship, not to mention anti-racism, is Knowing about racism is not the same as dismantling racism. You actually need to do a lot of work on yourself and in your community and your circles before you actually can get to the point of declaring that now you are an ally. So I'm curious if you guys have witnessed people in your own circles, in your work or otherwise, who seem to be mistaking awareness for action. How does this play out and how do you try to steer them in a better and more productive direction? I think for me that the biggest example is when it comes to allyship, when someone feels that allyship is a title they can bestow upon themselves. Mm -hmm. Allyship, like sponsorship, has to be earned, right? For someone to say, I am aware of racism, I am supportive of people of color, therefore I am an ally, 
you have to ask yourself, why do you give yourself that title? When is the last time you lent your equity, professional or personal, on behalf of someone from an underrepresented group? What sacrifices are you willing to make to support someone from an underrepresented group? And I think it's that bridge from, as you said, awareness to action that makes the difference in who truly is an ally or not. When you think about the difference between a mentor and a sponsor, a mentor is someone you can talk to about your journey. A sponsor is someone that talks about you when you're not in the room. And you may never even be aware that they spoke up for you, that they spent their political and their professional capital on your behalf. I believe that allyship is the same way. If you are doing it looking for a gold star, if you're doing it looking for recognition or reward, that is not allyship because you are doing it to your benefit. Allyship, I believe, is selfless because you are doing it with no hope or no expectation of recognition, reward, or personal benefit. You are truly taking your personal capital and applying it for someone else. Very powerful. Exactly. I, Barbara, I know you've seen this, just sort of the moment the light bulb goes on and all of a sudden they're like, got it. I'm out here. I'm here. Yeah. You. And you're like, but you haven't done anything yet. Oh, yes. I'm the queen of having these type of conversations, but doing it in a gentle way. But one of the things I wanted to share really quickly, I have amazing mentors and amazing friends who are superstars in this space. And one of my dear friends, uh, Tyra Roxton, just actually posted this on Instagram. A lot of people misunderstand what being woke is. It's being awake to what injustices go in the systems you participate in. It isn't sleeping in private while you're publicly vocal for a few seconds. Otherwise, it's just performative and we have enough award shows already. And that struck a nerve when he wrote that. And one of the things that I thought about when he said that was, and Sharice, you nailed it, in terms of being an ally. It's one of those things where it's hot right now to talk about anything Black. You got people supporting Black companies, buy Black, Black businesses, celebrities have gone on that bandwagon. And, and one of the things I like to say, because I'm big on acronyms, I see a lot, it's called fake fatigue. You're so exhausted of talking about it. You just want to get back to normal life. But what also Cherie stated is we live it. I opened up this podcast that I eat, sleep, and breathe being Black. It's not a switch that I can turn my skin white, right? And so it's a different type of resilience we as people of color have because it's something that we have to encounter and face day to day. It's the, the beautiful thing of agility. One of the things that I've realized is education is so big and I'm proud to have worked on and developed from scratch the racial social justice uh, work stream at Facebook where education and learning was the center. And one of the things I understood to be true is because for me, I was brought up in predominantly white middle school, high school, elementary. So I know white very well. What was fascinating to me was how little the other side knew us or cared to know us. And so once we created this racial social justice work stream, one of my kind of uh, requirements that we were going to take people to school. And so we were going to teach things that are not in the history books, that are distorted in the history books. And we were going to bring top professors, professionals who eat, breathe Black and can educate people on a whole different spectrum. 
And what I found is educational learning was like this entryway to understanding. Because at the end of the day, what we're trying to get is empathy. It's like walk in my shoes. You know, Sharice, you talk about the trauma uh, therapist, right? Is there a way, and we do this at Facebook with some of our trainees where they get the Oculus headset and they're literally walking in the shoes of people who've experienced these injustices. I think oftentimes, if you don't feel it, you don't see it. So if you're walking in lines and you've never experienced these things, it's super hard for people to resonate. And so my tactic has always been when I open up any workshop, but I do any diversity training or talk about my own Your Greatness workshop, is I have people close their eyes and think about a moment in time where they felt excluded. So you got to bring people in. And I am so surprised when people open their eyes are usually crying because it was that nerve that touched them. Were they excluded? Were they not invited to the dance? Were they excluded because they were chubby when they were a kid? Are they of a different sexual orientation and their parents didn't accept them? I mean, the list goes on. And that's when you got the hook. Then you open it for them where they can understand, well, gosh, if I felt that at that moment, I can't imagine what being Black feels like every day. So good. There's so much in what you said. I think there's a couple of things. One, we're definitely going to need to get that quote that you started with so that we can share that around. We have enough award shows. I'm just going to remember that. And I hope that people really ponder on that piece. And then the other thing that I think you're touching on is for many people, there is maybe a surface level of awareness, but there isn't deep sensory felt awareness, right? Maybe they are aware of what happened to George Floyd, and they can see that that is a very clear injustice. But they are not aware of the fact that you sit in meetings all day long with like maybe one Black person all day. Does that seem normal? Why is that normal? Why do you not notice that? What is the socialization that allows you to not be aware of that? And I think exactly to your point, Barbara, as Black people, we have to be so aware of quote unquote, the other side. We have to understand how white society works. We have to be so aware of how to get ahead, how to speak, how to dress, where to go to school, where to live, what to do. Like we need to know the ins and outs. And for white people in this country, they have never been asked to know this. And they also have never been taught it. You know, I've been reflecting a lot on this fact. The fact that I went to some of the best schools in the country, if not the world, and I don't think I ever learned in a classroom setting about the massacre on Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This act of domestic terrorism carried out by angry white mobs against innocent Black people whose only crime was doing better in life than some white people wanted them to. This was just never covered. Think about that. I learned about this just recently, in the last five years. And over the last year, we've seen depictions of it finally reach popular media. Let's think about what that level of erasure means. It means that we do not know our history, and therefore we cannot understand our present. And white people, more than most, have to really wrestle with what it means for them to arrive at a conversation about race so woefully, woefully underprepared. 
And so when you have this quote unquote mass level of awareness, what I want people to know is that they have just scratched the surface. Like you think, you know, but you have no idea. This is like some real world stuff. Like this is like paper thin levels of awareness, right? And so you don't want to take a paper thin level of awareness and make a whole anti-racism plan and strategy. Like based on what? You don't have the depth yet to know exactly what to do. So I just think that's so important. And Sharice, I know that Google has now taken even a more external facing approach to raising awareness broadly around systemic racism. And to me, it seems very clear why that's needed. But some people don't realize that even the very existence of systemic racism is something that many people are either unaware of or actively trying to refute. So I want to talk a little bit about the program you guys put together called Search for Racial Equity. Now, I know there's a lot of people who watch the show and what they're getting is they're increasing their own understanding of the problem. And I'm just curious, what do you think people need besides just this information? How do they take information like what you're serving in Search for Racial Equity and actually make it active, make it into effective allyship, make it into effective anti-racism. Yeah. So we started Search for Racial Equity on the Toxic Google platform. So it's an existing platform we've had for years where we bring some of the, the thought leaders in the world around any topic you can think of to just speak to our audience. First, it was Googlers internally, and then we opened it up on the YouTube platform to anyone in the world to tune in. And as part of our anti-racism education pillar. Uh, We had eight pillars to racial equity commitments that Google came out with, like many companies earlier this summer. This anti-racism education was one big piece. And we decided to do it on the toxic Google platform because we never wanted it to be assumed or position ourselves like we were the experts in this space. As an information company, we wanted to bring in the experts to share this information because I personally believe that the first step, not the only step, But the first step in anyone's anti-racism journey is education. And you have to educate yourself. It's not going to your Black friend or your Black colleague and asking them to share their experience. If that's something that you have a level of trust with them and they choose to open up to you, you can hold that space. But you can't ask an individual to expose their pain for your educational benefit. So we wanted to start platform to help people on that self-education journey. But we don't want them to stop there. What we want is for once people's eyes are opened to perspectives they might not have considered, to experiences they may not have lived, to then say, so how do I make a change? So whether it's Professor Ibram X. Kendi coming in and talking about questioning the systems in which you work and live, having Nicole Hannah-Jones come in and talk about the 1619 Project, and how the foundation of the American experiment did not happen in 1776, but it was defined in 1619 when the first slaves came off of a slave ship into the colonies, and that choice was made. Once you have that education, you can decide, am I going to share this knowledge? Am I going to shift my perspective? Am I going to ask the questions around why there are no Black people in this meeting? why there are no women in this meeting or indigenous people or Latinx people. It's how do you take that education and use it to challenge the status quo in your circle of influence? So many people say, well, 
I'm not an elected official or I'm not a senior leader. What can I possibly do? Whether it's in your school, your church, your community group, you have a center of influence and you can ask questions. You can question the status quo. You can push to change perspectives. And we're hoping that this series can start people thinking differently so that they take those actions in their personal spheres of influence. You know what strikes me, Sharice? As people start this journey of awareness, there is a lot of information, a lot of education that actually is going to be quite challenging, especially for people who identify as white. Having to come to terms with the fact that what you learned about American history is actually quite incomplete and intentionally skewed. What you understand about why your neighborhood or your church or your kid's school is all or majority white is likely missing key facts because you were never taught that the pattern of racial segregation that we still see in our country today was actually intentionally designed. That people who looked like me likely were legally barred from being your neighbors. That there are today American neighborhoods that still have racial covenants and redlining guidelines on the books, or only recently removed them in the last 20 years. You were never educated about the racist underpinnings of your suburbs and your workplaces. So of course, now it all seems like a meritocracy, but actually that's never existed in America. That has never been how our country has allocated its resources. And while many of us were being taught in the 90s to be colorblind, I actually think that seeing race and seeing racism is a clarifying principle and a clarifying prism on American society. It actually makes the things that would be impossible to understand otherwise actually make sense. Every aspect of what we're seeing right now is so designed. And I think that what we're seeing, even coming out of the Trump White House now, this pushback on anti-racist education and the so-called 1776 Project, all of it is a reaction to how challenging and upsetting the truth about the so-called American experiment really is. So I know, Barbara, you've done a lot of work in terms of raising awareness and educating employees at a mass level. Some of the maybe unintended consequences or how have people reacted when your programming raises things that are quite challenging for them? I think that's a great question, Kamala. One of the things I say to set off any program, any initiative is, I have this tagline is, we all need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. I'm setting the tone. Because one of the things I tell people about diversity and inclusion, it is not rosy feelings. That, that's not the main goal. The main goal is education awareness. And if we're going to go on this learning journey together, people need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I usually repeat that often because people are like, oh, you're just saying that, right? And you're like, oh, you're all smiles, Barbara. But when you start looking at information and you starting to hear just like the history of our country, a lot of times it's gut-riching for people. And I just want to do a quick shout out to HBCUs, Historically Black College and Universities. I went to Spelman College. And the first course you take freshman year is ADW. It's African Diaspora of the World. And what that tells you and shows you is the, the deep, rich history of our people. Then you're also encouraged to study abroad at another country. So I ended up going to South Africa at the University of Cape Town. And really what Spelman College and what these HBCU institutions are doing is letting you not get comfortable 
with oneness. Yes, we're all black in my particular case. Spelman College is all female. And there were so many glory years. But what they are ultimately preparing are warriors to understand and know your history, to understand and know that you will in turn be educators. And you need to know your history inside and out. Because as you can imagine, what we see right now, there's so much misinformation. And so for me, I'm not easily swayed when I see certain things because I know what the real is. I've been taught that, which is fascinating. I've learned to start and lead with the being comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I've had various reactions, right? I have microaggressions every day. I have people who try to retaliate against me, right? I mean, a lot of people don't want to hear the truths of their people. And so this is where I encourage folks. I build different relationships. I talk about empathy. I do the exercises of really sitting deep in their exclusion. So really getting them to relate in some capacity or the other. But ultimately, at the end of the day, a lot of the work streams that I work on, the, the key takeaway is action. It's not enough for you to learn and sit and hear about all the trauma. It's now, what are you going to do uncomfortable? And so we, I actually direct it back to people. So now that you've gotten all this learning and it's a continual learning journey, what are you going to do differently? Another quick example I'll share is, you know, when it's kind of ongoing now, which is sad, but when we had the unfortunate murder of George Floyd and just so, so many others, we talked a lot and the spotlight was on police. And I wanted to find a way where it could move from just like a far off, that's what they do, that's police. And what I wanted to do, I always bring it home to something intimate where I then turned the question around and said, what are you doing to police people in work, in the meetings? Have you policed people's voice, right? How have you policed people's actions by saying, oh, they don't have executive presence. They weren't a like a good culture fit. That's also a form of policing, Right. Or go with the microaggressions that come up, right? Where you go to my manager without giving me any opportunity to talk about anything to police my tone, right? We've heard of the Black women like, oh, she's so aggressive. A lot of that is policing. And so we had a great breakthrough when you start to take outside phenomenons and bring them inside intimately where people have to self-examine because at the end of the day, everyone has bias. The quicker we admit that, the quicker we're like, okay, I have bias. This is the world that we live in. The quicker we can all come to action. And so I am just a fan of real talk. I am not a fan of sugarcoating it. It doesn't do any justice to anyone and it's a waste of time. I love that. I love that. Even thinking about so powerful what you said about the norms that are enforced in the corporate environment and how that is a form of policing people's behaviors and getting them to fall in line and to assimilate to a certain set of norms that were never envisioned to include anyone but straight white men. That's who the workforce was designed around. That's what the corporate environment was meant to contain. And so everyone is pushed to regress to that mean. And so really bringing that concept alive to people, I just think that's so powerful. So, I mean, I think the thing that I want people to take away from this episode is not that awareness is not important, but it's just the tip of the iceberg. You've really only scratched the surface in terms of what racism is, how it works, and there's so much beneath the surface. 
more to understand, and of course, more to do. So Sharice, I just want to end with you because Barbara gave us so many amazing examples and that push to action. I'm just curious, what would you say to someone who thinks that they may be stuck at just the awareness level? What advice do you have for them to go deeper into the funnel? The advice I'd have for them to go deeper, honestly, I'm going to piggyback on what Barbara said. You have to make it personal. If you're saying, wow, Sharice, I really was not aware of the experience of Black people. I was not aware, for example, of the impact of microaggressions or the impact of limited career opportunity. Ask yourself, how would I feel if my child were treated like this person? How would I feel if my father or brother or sister were made to face a microaggression or an outright discriminatory act? I was touched deeply by George Floyd's murder. I haven't watched the video. I won't watch the murder of another human being. On Facebook, just last week, it came up that he would have turned 47 years old. It hits differently when you realize this person is your age. I turned 47 years old this summer. You look at someone and you can kind of have a a distance, even as a black woman, you can have a distance. Oh, well, they're from a different town than I am. Oh, they were in a different um, circumstance than I. But when you get something that personal, when you can make that personal connection, it hits completely differently. So when someone is saying, I understand now, what do I do next? I would say, how do you make that personal connection? Who in your life is a 47-year-old man? How would you feel if that person was murdered on video? For the world to see. Who in your life is an EMT? How would you feel if that person was killed in their home due to a botched police raid? Who in your life is a child visiting family in another state that was old enough to walk to a store to get Skittles and a soda? How would you feel if that child's life was taken? So it's one thing to make it philosophical, to understand it from an academic standpoint. It's another to recognize and identify with the humanity of people, not just when lives are lost. That's the most extreme case. It's what happens every day. How would you feel if your name prevented you from getting a job? How would you feel if your hair made someone think you were unprofessional? How would you feel if you had to police your tone of voice because you've been told that you're aggressive. So I'm giving lots of examples and preaching to the choir here, but I think the main step from awareness to action is to personalize, is to humanize what you are seeing and realize this is not just a statistic and it could very well have been you or someone you love or someone who looks like you, save for the color of your skin. So good. So good. So, wow, you guys have just dropped so many amazing gems on us. Now, we're just getting started on this journey towards anti-racism, and I feel like we're going to be unlocking major keys along the way. Thank you, Sharice. Thank you, Barbara, for being with us today to unpack some of the limits of awareness and also to start to point us towards where we're trying to go, which is allyship and anti-racism. I hope that everyone is feeling inspired by this conversation and ready to go deeper into the funnel. 
Now, it's not always going to be pretty and easy, but it is going to be worth it. So next time, we're going to talk about sympathy and why, just as Sharice was saying, and Barbara as well, until your feelings get involved and until it becomes personal for you, you probably won't be able to become truly invested in this fight in the way that we need you to. All right, that's our show for today. I'm Kamala Avila Salmon, and you can follow me at the Real KAS One. And before we go, Barbara and Sharice, would you like to tell the people where they can follow you? Sure, you can find me at Equal Parts Joy on Instagram and on Twitter. Yes, and you can find me at on IG at Barb Smiles S M I L E Z. Amazing! Thank you, ladies, so so much. Till next time. Thanks for joining us and for making it this far. As always, I'm Kamala Avila Salmon, and you can follow me on social media at The Real KS1. Subscribe now wherever you listen to podcasts, and don't forget to rate us to help more people find the show. From Woke to Work was produced by me, Kamala Avila Salmon in partnership with Julian Lewis and TJ Bonaventura at StudioPod. Edits were made by Noda Lab. Our amazing artwork was designed by Tommy Gomez. And this fire track I'm speaking on was produced by Dave Contrap. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>